once again this evening. Later on, we will be looking at Romans 12, but I want to take our reading from 1 Corinthians and chapter 12 and begin to read at verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and beginning to read at verse 12. Let's hear the word of God. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We thank God for the reading of his word. Well, this evening I'd like uh, to take you to Romans chapter 12. So perhaps you would turn with me to Romans and chapter 12. And let's read from the first verse. We're going to consider verses 4 and 5 this evening. Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So reads the word of God. Well, these, uh, these verses speak to us about the physical body and also about the body which is the church. And what the Apostle Paul is doing in chapter 12 is he is reminding us of what the gospel should do to us. Once we come to faith and to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the gospel should change us, should change the way that we think, first of all. And when the way that we think is changed, then the way we behave will naturally follow. So we are to have this renewal of mind. That's a great burden of the first two verses. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, once our mind is renewed, our whole lives will be transformed. We will live different lives in response to the gospel. And what Paul does in this chapter is he shows us how this renewal of mind is going to transform every part of our lives. Every relationship that we have will be changed because we are Christians. The gospel will have that effect. It will naturally and should naturally have that effect, but it needs to be encouraged as well as we, as we found in verses 1 and 2. So my relationship with myself is going to change. The way I think about myself is going to change, verse 3. And then my relationship with my church family is going to change, verses 4 through to 8. My relationship with my emotional life is going to change. The things that I love, the things that I hate, the way that my mind controls my emotional responses, that's going to change as well, verses 9 to 13. Even my relationship with my enemies is going to change, verse 14. And then I find that there is a change in the way that I relate to people who are not like me, people who are not in my particular social circle, verse 16. And not only people who I like, but my relationship with people that irritate me, that's also going to change, verses 17 and 18. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, he's going to speak about my relationship with those who wrong me. Verse 19. We could move on and look into chapter 13, because then he's going to talk about our relationships in the world as citizens and how the way that we relate and respond to governments and those in authority over us, how that changes as well. And all of this, remember, is the result 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in us. You see, this is so important. And this is why we're looking at these these verses on a Sunday evening. Because if there's one thing that none of us want, it is to go back to what things were like in January and February 2020. We shouldn't want to go back to that. That wasn't ideal in any way. When we do eventually go back, and this is a year where we will gradually find ourselves moving towards something different to what we've had over the last 12 months, but as we gradually regain some freedoms, as some sort of normal life returns again, we've got to ask ourselves a question, what should that look like? What should my life look like as a Christian? What should the church look like? Because what we had before COVID-19 was not in any way ideal. It certainly wasn't the church as we see her presented in the New Testament. We had drifted a long way from what we ought to be. And so we ought to be asking the question now, what should that look like? What should our lives look like when we do come out of all of this? And I think one of the passages we need to really consider is Romans chapter 12. So Paul has already told us about our relationship with ourself. The way we think about ourself is so important. We are not to think more highly than we ought to think. Pride and arrogance has no place in the Christian life. It is extremely damaging to us and to others. But also we must not think too lowly of ourselves. We mustn't have a false humility. Rather, he says, there needs to be a sober judgment, a realistic assessment of what God has done in us and what he will do through us. So that's the first area. But then what is next? Well, what would you put next, I wonder? What would you put next? Your relationship with yourself. What's the next thing to consider? Well, Paul puts the church next. Interestingly, he doesn't put family next. I think we would probably put family next. We're probably so conditioned by the culture in which we live that we tend to think of me, my family, my work, my life in the world. Where's church in all of that? Well, Paul says it needs to come second. It needs to come after self comes church, your relationship with church. In this, the Apostle Paul is certainly following his master, the Lord Jesus. You remember back in Mark's Gospel and chapter 3, there was an incident when Jesus' mother and brothers came to fetch him. Jesus was very busy. And this is what happened, Mark 3, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. There are eternal relationships that are being formed right now on earth. And these relationships, even death, will never sever them. We are to be transformed in our thinking about other people in the church and our relationship with them. So Paul says, that's the next thing. I want you to think about your relationship with other people within the church. Now, I think this is a really necessary thing for us to consider and to understand. COVID has separated us. That's one of the effects that it's had, isn't it? I mean, I can see that just looking at you tonight. I can see that COVID has separated us. Physically, it separated us. We can't sit next to the people in church that we used to sit next to. We can't have those closer relationships that we we so long for as Christian brothers and sisters. Now, the great danger is that COVID can separate us to such an extent that we end up slipping into unbiblical and unhelpful ways of thinking about church. Because what has happened is that we have been separated and we are no longer able to function together as intimately and closely as we ought to. Problem with that is that we can soon have in our minds an individualism that is incredibly damaging. We already live in a culture that puts the individual above everything else. What you think is important, what you feel is important, how you respond is important to things. But in the church, we are not to think like that. And and that sort of thinking, that individualism, that separatism can threaten the church. And it also goes right against the renewed mind that is of the gospel. The gospel transforms us by renewing our minds so that we think differently about how from how we used to think, and we think differently from the world around us as well. So it's really important for us to think about this. We need to start thinking the way that God thinks and to discern his will and to know what is pleasing and perfect to him. So how does this work then in relation to the church? Well, the Apostle Paul takes two verses to begin to explain how we are to think about one another. He tells us, first of all, that we are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ. We are to think of ourselves as joined to everyone else in the church in a similar way that all the members of your body are joined to every other member of your body in order to form one body. Verses 4 and 5 are very clear, aren't they? Just as each one of us has one body with many members, so in Christ we who are many form one body. Verse 4 and verse 5. 
I think the ESV is, is even better in the way that it puts this. Let me read the, the, the verses from the ESV. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Individually members one of another. We, though many, are one body in Christ. Now, to understand and to appreciate this, we need to think of the gospel. Think of what the gospel has done to you. The good news of Jesus Christ, when you have embraced it and you have responded to its call and you have come to the Lord Jesus, the gospel reconciles you to God. That's one of the great things, isn't it? We've been reconciled to God. Whereas once we were strangers to God, once we were alienated from him, now, through Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. The death of Jesus has removed what separated us from God. Our sins separated us from our God. But now that sin has been removed by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are welcomed by God into his family. Think of the prodigal son as he returns, knowing that he is a sinner. I've sinned against heaven and against you, he's thinking. That's what he's going to say to his father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's thinking about this all the way home. And then as he approaches the home, in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, we find that the father runs to him. And he begins his little speech, doesn't he? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him. Quick, he says, uh, get a robe to put on him. Bring sandals for his feet. Put a ring on his finger. And go and kill that fatted calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This, my son, was dead. And he's alive again. He's lost. He's been found. Let's celebrate. And the son is welcomed into the family again, isn't he? He doesn't think he's worthy, and he's not worthy. But the father is so gracious in reconciling him. This son who has been separated from him by his own sin and willfulness has now been reconciled to the father. But don't forget, there's something else. Not only have we been reconciled to God, we've also been reconciled to every other believer in Christ. We have a new relationship with every single believer in the world. We are now brothers and sisters. The great thing about coming to be reconciled to God is that you enter a family that stretches around the world in every nation, amongst every people, and also through all of time. So that we have brothers and sisters we are only brothers and sisters, by the way. There are no daughters and sons. And there are no mothers and fathers. We are brothers and sisters in the same relationship, the same generation, we might call it. We have this horizontal relationship with one another. And we are brothers and sisters with everybody who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ in the whole world. But let me press that a little bit further. We are also part of the one body of believers in the local church. 
And that's really important. That's what Paul is speaking about here, and particularly in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not talking about the body of Christ stretching throughout the whole world, the one that we can't actually see because we can't be with everybody in the world. No, he's he's bringing it home very specifically. He's saying you are actually part of the body of Christ in your local church. Sometimes it's easy for me to think about being united as one body to believers that I will never, ever meet. It's much harder to appreciate and to live out the fact that we are members of the body right where we are in our own local church, the people that we meet week by week, those that we have joined ourselves to by a covenant union as members of the church. We are joined to them in the same way that a finger is joined to an arm via the wrist and the hand. And the same way that the knee is joined to the foot via the tibia. You are as linked to every other member of the church as the tiniest part of your body is linked to every other part of the body. We have a much more detailed description of of this fact in 1 Corinthians 12. That's why we read that. But listen to verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. And verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. You see, again and again in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is emphasizing this fact. Yes, we are many members, but we are one body. We are joined together. Now, the Corinthians needed to know that because they were going astray at this point. They were disunited They weren't recognizing one another, and they weren't recognizing the unity of the body. We mustn't make the same mistake. When you become a Christian, you were, when you became a Christian, you were immediately a member of the body of Christ, with Jesus himself as the head. But you were also joined to the believers you worship with week by week. That is the body that Paul is referring to here. Those people that you know, those you rub along with every week and often between Sundays as well. Membership of a local church is simply giving the proper recognition to that truth and promising to live it out. But And, and it's a logical step. Once you recognize that you are joined to every other believer in your local church, the logical step then is to become a member of that church to give that some sort of a physical, visible form and to commit yourself to living together as a body of Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul is saying here in in Romans 12. It's very profound. Just as each of us has one body with many members, so in Christ we who are many form one body. What does, he, what does he go on to say? Well, he goes on to say that we are purposefully different. We are purposefully different. Can't think of a different way of saying that. But there is a reason why we are different. There is a purpose in the fact that each one of us is different. So as well as emphasizing this unity of the body, it's one body, He also wants to make the point that we 
are each like a member of the body with a different function. See, someone might object to this sort of teaching and say, well, you know, um, does that take away my individuality? Does it mean that I can't be me because I'm part of this body? Certainly not. That's not true. You can still be you. You still are you. You are still the individual that you always have been. Yet there is a change in the way that you are behaving and in your relationships. A church where everyone behaves in the same way, where everybody thinks exactly the same things, and where everybody does exactly the same things, that's not a church. It's a cult. And that's certainly not the vision of the New Testament church. The individuality of each church member is is guarded jealously here, isn't it? We are one, but we are different. We have different functions. See, again, see verses 4 and uh, and 6, very clear on this. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. So the members don't all have the same function. We, though many, are are, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul again refers to the body when he tries to make this point for us. Each member of your body has a different function, a tendon, a muscle, an ankle joint, an eyelash, a fingernail, even the smallest unseen parts of the body are essential to the whole. And the more obvious visible parts are also essential, but but no less essential than the smaller parts of a body. You know that, don't you, from when something goes wrong. If the tiniest part of your body goes wrong, it affects everything, doesn't it? So each part of the body must do their job well. Each part of the body must function as it should in order for the body to operate efficiently. Again, that's something that the Corinthians were forgetting all about. They were dismissing some members of the of the church as unimportant. They felt that they could get along quite nicely without them. They were looking down on certain members of the body as if, you know, that the, the church would function a lot better if they simply weren't here. And so they used to exclude them. They would exclude them from things like communion and from their love feasts, particularly. We read that in 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul has to really address this quite strongly, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, as we read earlier, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they're all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. We should never expect everyone in the church to behave as we do or to share exactly the same views as we do. That is is not how God has designed the body. 
Neither has he designed the body of, of Christ so that everybody does the same thing. There are different gifts, there are different functions because we are a body. So you find that we will differ on all sorts of things. There is an individuality about church members, isn't it? We won't all see eye to eye on politics, will we? Or on education, on music, or art, or science, or literature, or fashion, and styles of clothing, or anything else, really. The only thing that we must agree on is the gospel and the word of God. Those are the things that Christians agree on. These are the things that cannot be disputed because we've all come to know the same Savior through the same Holy Spirit. As Paul says, we are all baptized by the one Spirit into one body. But we are still individuals within that. That's how God has put the church together. And we must value one another and recognize the importance of each church member and their gifts and their functions Though they are different to ours, they are still valuable. That's how God has viewed things. Notice that Paul says a couple of times in 1 Corinthians 12 that God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That's verse 18. And then again in verse 24, God has combined the members of the body and has given great honor to the parts that lacked it. God has made you the way that you are. God has given you the function in the body of Christ that you have. And you must recognize that and recognize others as well, that God has put us where he wants us to be. And when we're functioning the way we should, as individuals, purposefully different, we will be actually functioning as the body of Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. But let's go back to Romans 12 for one final point. So, so we are one body in Christ. We are purposefully different, but we have a God-given interdependence. This is a really important point that we find in verse 5. We have a God-given interdependence. The point of Romans 12 verses 4 and 5 is this. We are interdependent. We are not just a unity. We are a community. We are a community of people who are functioning together as a church. That is the New Testament picture of church. Not just individuals who happen to worship together in the same place, who happen to agree on the essentials of the Christian faith. No, 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 much more than that. There might be a unity like that, and I think this is where sometimes as churches we go wrong. We recognize our unity, but that unity is never then moved on the next step to community where we actually are a community of people together, working together, living together before the Lord and functioning together. And then there is a further step too. Unity needs to be recognized as community, but community needs to be seen as communion as well. We have communion with one another. And and that is, is really the closeness of relationship 
that the Apostle Paul and the whole New Testament speak of with the church. The diversity of gifts simply emphasize the fact that we have a communion in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit as he's distributed them throughout the church. We are members one of another and we need each other. And it's only as the gifts of the Holy Spirit are exercised, it's only when we are functioning as part of the body that we then will see and know this communion together. Believers are not only members of one body, but members of one another as well. Verse 5 of, of Romans 12, each member belongs to all the others. That's how the NIV puts it. Each member belongs to all the others. Have you thought about that? Is that the way you think about church? You belong to every other member of the church. Or the way that the ESV puts it, I think better. Individually, we are members of one another. What does that mean? Let's try and explain what that means. What does it mean to belong to all the other members? What does it mean to be members one of one another? Well, it means that the gospel has broken down all barriers in the church. So there are no racial barriers in the church. It doesn't matter what our racial origins are. It doesn't matter what our racial identity is. That has been broken down by the gospel. The gospel has broken down all economic barriers as well. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are in the church. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter how much you earn. It doesn't matter if you're unemployed. None of those things matter in the church. They are matters of concern for us, but they don't divide us because all economic barriers have been broken down. Social barriers have been broken down as well. It doesn't matter what social class you might identify with. It doesn't matter where you come from in the social scale of things. None of that matters because all that's been broken down in Christ. The things that once divided us when we were outside of Christ have now all come tumbling down and we are one. We are one with people who we would never have got on with before we were Christians. People who may be very different to us, but this is the joy of the church. This is the wisdom of God that he has brought together people from all different backgrounds. This is one of the reasons why we, we should oppose any planting of churches for one group of people. You sometimes hear people say, well, I'm going to plant a church for middle class people. And that's not a church. A church is made up of everyone from all different social groups and economic backgrounds and racial backgrounds as well. We shouldn't have a church simply for people who are speaking one language. Churches should be for everybody who speak the languages that are all around us in the society in which we live. Someone once wrote, we are significant players in each other's gospel narrative and it is in relationship with one another 
that we experience the fullness of God in Christ. There is a richness in the church because we are one body and because we are functioning together as that one body. We need to see that the gospel has done this. The good news of Jesus has done all of this. Nothing else has done it. It's not just that we've decided to join together and to get along with one another. No, that's not true at all. Christ has joined us together. The gospel have done it. The greatness of your salvation in Christ should make you value the church for which Christ died. It should make you see every other believer in the local church as someone for whom Christ died. That is how we should see one another. We should understand that everyone in the church, every member of the church, is someone for whom Christ died. And that means that they are precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they are precious to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are precious to you as well, aren't they? You should value the role that you play in the lives of your fellow Christians. You may not realize it, but you are playing an important role in their Christian development. The way that you relate to them and the way that you live before them and the things that you say to them and the things that you do for them are all part of their walk with the Lord. And you are significant. You say, well, I don't do anything. Well, you do. You do. You don't recognize what you do, but the very fact that you are who you are and that you're relating